To start the new year off, Media Mavens is bringing you the best of 2021 with over 100 podcasts and four seasons later, dive into some of the best in sports, tech, and entertainment, and those that were a pleasure to sit down and talk with. Let's dive into sports. Carl Francis, Director of Communications for NFL Players Association. We knew what we were getting into at the beginning of this, and that's why we were so stringent on uh, setting up protocols that can protect the players. And we knew we would have hiccups, but I mean, you have to see it through. If you committed yourself to it, we, we're all in this together. You know, all sports, all citizens, everybody is like a community now. Nobody is separate. So the fans, folks that work in the stadiums, the parking attendants, like everybody is impacted in this space. So yeah. we all have to work together to make sure we get to the end of this particular sport frame. It's going okay. You know, I was always half full anyway. If the players decided they want to play, we'll come in and, and build out an infrastructure that can protect them to give them the best protection for them and their families. And once we do that, we just try to enforce the rules, make sure guys are aware, make sure personnel and the league is responsible for making sure that team officials are aware. This is front office folks. These are coaches, trainers, equipment managers. I mean, this is not an isolated area. So we just making sure everybody is safe and making sure we can get to the finish line. Scott O'Neill, former CEO of Philadelphia 76ers. You know, we have a really passionate fan base. So Philadelphia, if you're not from Philadelphia, it's a, it's a really hardcore blue collar city. It's a, a city that's the second highest poverty rate of any major U.S. city. So, so we definitely have our fair share of, of issues and challenges. But as far as sports go, you're not going to find a, a much more kind of spirited, passionate fan base than you'll find here. They just they just needed a little a little hope and a little something to get excited about because certainly when I walked in, it wasn't the case. Stuart Ballantyne, Senior VP of Venues and Entertainment at Oilers Entertainment. Yeah, the border's closed. So, you know, transferring back and forth, I mean, it's been difficult for us because, you know, our farm team is in Bakersfield, California. So we've had to bring in a taxi squad and leave them here in Canada. Otherwise, it could be a 14-day quarantine just to make a player change. Yeah, mm. You saw that with the Lion A trade. They, they had to quarantine on their way into Canada and Lion A had to, to quarantine in Columbus. It's interesting with the Canadian division to the point where we don't follow a lot of the U.S., the three U.S. divisions on TV as much because yeah. we're not playing them next week. We're not playing them in three weeks. And the media is so focused on... You know, on what's going on in Canada, uh, the hockey media, that it is, it's kind of cool, but it's also weird because it feels like we're in a 17 league again versus a 31 team league. Yeah. I don't know if that same thing is happening in the US, but, you know, as a home team, when we host Toronto or Montreal, those are the biggest nights, Vancouver. And of course, our battle with, with Calgary, the Battle of Alberta, is just is storied history. It could be one of the, the, the most rivaled two franchises in the NHL. And so it's been entertaining, and it's just a shame we can't put fans in the building. Stephen A. Crystal, CEO of SCCG. Tell us a little bit more about, I mean, what your company does and your history, because you're very knowledgeable in this space. So I'm assuming you've kind of started off doing this years ago and have evolved as the technology's evolved. Yeah, so I, I started actually probably with the best training for what I've ended up doing. I started out actually in, in politics and 
uh, both as an elected official at a very young age, uh, serving in the in the New Hampshire legislature when I was a college student at Dartmouth, to running presidential campaigns. I ran several at a very high level. I decided to not go into a career in politics. I got a law degree instead in Washington, D.C., and then I moved to Kansas City, Missouri. And at the time I moved, they were re- approving riverboat gambling, which was the first expansion of casinos outside of Atlantic City and Vegas. And I was an expert in land use. So they had to come to me to get an opinion that said they could put a riverboat in a particular location. And that's at age 26. That's how I got into the casino industry as an expert in land use permits for riverboat casinos. That ended up leading into a transaction where I owned a piece of real estate that a $500 million casino was built on in Kansas City called Kansas City Station Casino. And when that was sold, we took the money from that success and we parlayed it into buying six casinos on Fremont Street in Vegas. So I was a casino owner. Which casinos? We owned the Plaza, which still exists to this day. The Plaza Casino, when it was built in 1970, And 71 was the largest casino in Las Vegas at the time. This was before the expansion on the Strip. And that was the casino that, if you remember from the movie Casino, the scene with Sharon Stone and and Robert De Niro, they're in the steakhouse and they're arguing and looking down Fremont Street. That was the plaza. And we all love food and music. We also covered what's cooking in the kitchen. Aaron Miller, executive chef at the Mountain Lodge in Colorado. Well, sustainable seafood was part of it. It was more of like sustainable proteins. Now, proteins meaning coming from the ocean or coming from the land. I had partnered at the time with a company called EcoFish. Now, EcoFish was out of Portsmouth, Maine. And what they did was they went in and found seafood direct from the fisheries, from the farms, from wherever that they believed was sustainable. Now, that meant that there was no bycatch issues, that the fish was was fished correctly, whether it was a single line, single hook, there were no nets involved. And what they did was they would set up as an intermediary between, let's say, me and the actual fishermen or families or, or maybe it's, it was a small business at the time. They would set up a distribution actually direct from the fisheries to me. A lot of times it was done through FedEx. Uh, An example of that was that the crab meat I brought in was from Washington at the time. And literally, but by the time it was picked and sent to me was literally less than 36 hours, 38 hours. So the, the crab meat I was getting in didn't actually taste like crab meat to me when I first tasted it. It was very, very delicate. It was very mild. The crab meat that I had been used to eating, I had learned at that point was crab meat with age on it, that it already had started going south. And that was what I was used to. So getting seafood direct from source, not only of the environmental aspect, but just from the uh, maybe from the direction of just the flavor of it and the texture was completely different than what I've been used to. Nick Bogat, owner of Caliente Pizza and Draft House. We actually 
have been named three-time world pizza champions at the International Pizza Expo in Las Vegas, as well as in 2019, my chef and I traveled over to Parma, Italy, and won the best American pizza in Italy in 2019. And I just fell in love with the team atmosphere of the pizza industry. And I stuck through it, through thick and thin. You know, as my journey grew, I started wrecking a couple of cars as a delivery driver and ended up inside being a manager and a cook and really worked my way through that chain and through that process. And really everybody looks at Caliente Pizza and Draft House. We're close to $10 million in sales per year. It was founded by myself. We have no partners, just my wife and I. And everybody looks at it as an overnight success. But the pizza journey really was a 16-year journey before I opened Caliente Pizza and Draft House. I worked a lot for Domino's and Papa John's. So I learned a, a lot of uh, different strategies and structures and procedures, P&L, stuff that really helped me when I finally got that opportunity to go out on my own. Nice. Okay. So you're, so you're not, you're just a business owner. You're actually making your own pizzas as well. Oh yeah. We make, we make everything in house. We make our dough recipe, sauce, cheese. But we also wanted to entertain on Media Maven's podcast. In memoriam, Tani Katane, actress. So what's your story about Quentin Tarantino? This is interesting. Oh my God. This is such a great story. So my agent calls me, this is about a year and a half ago. And he says, Quentin Tarantino is throwing a bachelor party for one of his friends. Some, I forgot his name. He's a, a big director, obviously, of Quentin, if he's one of Quentin's best friends. And he said he would like for me to come to the bachelor party. So I, it's Quentin. What am I going to say? No, I'm busy. So I said, sure. So he sent me a car. I drive up to Los Angeles and I get escorted up to his private theater with like 45 guys and I meet all of them and I'm high and Quentin's there and high and he says, please sit with me. We sit down and they play the movie Bachelor Party. (laughs) It was like being at Rocky Horror Picture Show because every single word to that movie Quentin and all those 45 guys knew it and said it back to the screen. It is oh one of God. Quentin's favorite movies. He had it on 35 millimeter or whatever it's called in his projective yeah. room. You know, the old fashioned like yes. the big pan one. So he didn't put it in a VCR. He literally had it in the, is it 35 millimeter? 35 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah, he had in 35 millimeter. And I was just sitting there. I didn't watch any of the movie. I was staring at Quentin the entire time. He did not miss a beat and literally yelled back at the screen. My dialogue, Tom's dialogue, everybody's oh. dialogue. Oh, my God. Did they actually do the donkey when the donkey dies? Oh, my God. The guys <laughs> were on the floor. They were just in. I was just like going. I, I mean, it was like a twilight zone. And then at the end of the movie. If that wasn't weird enough for me, Marilyn Manson walks in. <laughs> so Marilyn's there. It's me, 45 guys from Marilyn Manson. Marilyn is telling me about the scene that he's got to shoot the next day where he takes it up the bum. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And he goes, hey, do you want to go to Leo's house for a party? And I'm like, Leo? Leo? I know who that is. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and do you know what I said? You probably said no. I said, I've got to get to bed early. It's already three o'clock in the morning. I can't go. And I was like, I was in the the car on the way home going, wait, Leo, 
Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh my God. And I was halfway to Newport Beach and just thought, I'm just go to sleep. <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> Ron G, actor and comedian. I think comedy is so needed more than ever. It's so dark. We need something. We have to laugh and realize, hey, it's not that bad. We're going to get through it as a society, civilization. There's funny things out there that brings us joy that are great to laugh at. It's healthy for you. And I think we need more of that right now, not less of that. Right. And I also feel like what the thing I've learned literally during quarantine about comedy is comedy is orange juice because we all need medicine. And, you know, David Chappelle is one of the best at making orange juice. You might not like the medicine, but the orange juice kills a little bit of the taste. And he kind of shows us, us ourselves every time he does a special. And I love it, man. So even for myself, man, just being able to have a voice online and figuring out how to say what I want to say without alienating too many people, but they still get the message. Like it's an art. And I said, it's just adding orange juice as a parent and as a, you know, entertainer. So you, you too, Joe, like sometimes you have to speak on things that, especially if you're doing a voiceover and you're like calling the game or something, like you have to figure out how to say it without alienating anybody and still give them the information. So that's the art and the skill that, especially during this time, I feel like is very important. And for me, when the George Floyd protests happened, it really warmed my heart because being a little black boy from the South and being an adult was my first time. Like I went, I went to me and my lady went to a couple of protests and watching all these different groups of people protest on the behalf of black people, like warm my heart. I started crying because I was like, in my entire life, I just felt so unseen my entire life until this moment. I'm like, I feel seen. Like having a white girl, you know, yell at the cops on my behalf, like for me, was like so heartwarming. I'm like, yo, like this world is changing. And I'm loving that the younger generation is getting it and willing to, you know, put their life and what they believe on on the line. And I feel like with this election, it's an opportunity to to create the the world we want to live in. Ira Rubinstein. Chief Digital and Marketing Officer for PBS. Let's talk numbers. You ran off some numbers before we started the podcast that were so impressive because like you said, nobody really thinks PBS is a digital play, but you really have done a lot in the digital world. What are your numbers of viewers, users? From uh, well, everything? it's actually twofold. People don't look at us as a large traditional broadcaster. And when you talk about households, we're typically sixth or seventh. I mean, we're larger than Discovery. We're larger than History Channel. We're larger than, you know, CNN. We're larger than all these smaller cable. And in fact, I mean, most recently, All Creatures Great and Small, the night of the Super Bowl, we were the most watched show other than the Super Bowl. So we get eyeballs traditionally. And it's about, you know, each month, it's about 100 million people are tuning into their local station. But then... When you switch over to the apps, we're really large there too. We get on average about 32 million people a month watching our apps, about 51 million across maybe our our social content. And then in terms of streams, we're looking at about 400 million streams a month across our web and mobile and OTT and T apps. And that's, as we were speaking earlier to COVID, that's about a 25% increase from uh, the year before. So it's it's quite substantial in our traditional sense. And then you have our non-traditional sense. And I mean non-traditional, that's uh, PBS Digital Studios, which is it launched right before I got to PBS. And we've been able to grow it substantially. And what I like to position it as is imagine, so PBS is 50 years old. And when the early days of PBS, they were doing all sorts of experimental television. And so for digital studios on YouTube, the attempt is for that audience, for that platform, 
think of what a public media PBS show should be like. So whether it's Deep Focus or a show about art or science, Physics Girl, for example, that's what that is doing. And that has grown to about 22 monthly users, about 55 monthly views on YouTube. And again, that's uh, up about 16% over year over year. And we're typically in the top three for education creators on YouTube. Chris Gianella, publisher of Modern Luxury Magazine and Angelino and LA Confidential. We're starting to see a, a pickup a little bit more with the luxury goods market. Obviously, watches is always a big category for us. Jewelry is, is, is always strong. So we're seeing definitely an influx there. And also, a lot of the luxury brands want to get back to their targeted, rooted audience of people who may have not been in those stores over the past six months. So modern luxury creates that kind of local capability of us bringing the very wealthy people back into these stores. So we're seeing a lot more buzz on the streets with the luxury brands coming back strong. So I think Q4 is not going to be as strong as it was last Q4, but it's definitely on an uprise as well. But I agree with you. I think the election is also a time where things kind of go on halt. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. But we didn't stop there. We went around the globe with a few spectacular people. Emiliano Rupra, producer and TV host for Nat Geo and Discovery Channel. You're working on a team of biologists saving the black panthers and jaguars, right? Yeah, so I am. I'm working with a bunch of biologists all over the Mayan jungle, which stretches from the south of Mexico into Guatemala and Belize. And we're, we're basically working to expand jungle habitat for jaguars, which, as you know, are endangered, but have been a, a pretty successful kind of reintroduction species. So through expanding the, the biosphere, many of these groups have kind of helped increase jaguar populations throughout the area. They are and, such beautiful creatures. Like I always see some of the posts on Facebook. And so because I'm a cat person, so is my little sister. Allison Levine. New York Times bestselling author of On the Edge. I got a phone call from some women who were thinking about putting this expedition together and they asked me if I wanted to be the team captain. And initially when I got the phone call, I said no, just because, you know, I just, even though I climbed the highest peak on six continents, you know, by that time and had done a lot of other climbing in between, I still felt like, I wasn't going to be good enough. I wasn't going to be fast enough. I wasn't going to be strong enough. You know, just all this doubt kind of crept into my head. But then I realized, you know, there's only going to be one first American women's Everest expedition. And if I didn't step up to the plate to be the team captain, you know, somebody else was going to do it. Somebody else was going to be living my dream adventure. And I think there are times in your life where you just have to step up, even if you feel like you aren't ready. We also took our jobs seriously as podcasters with some serious global leaders who keep the U.S. safe. So we created Global News Watch, a global segment of Media Maven's podcast to deliver real-time news that keeps us safe and affects our lives with our monthly guest, Mick Mulroy. Retired Lieutenant General of the U.S. Army, Kenneth Tovo, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and CIA Paramilitary Operations Officer, Mick Mulroy. I have a question for you, Austin, the paper, guys. You mentioned that the U.S. needs to evolve and adapt your regular warfare capabilities to match these other countries. Have you guys felt that you've evolved since 2002 and three, or since you wrote the paper? Or do you guys feel you still have a ways to go to catch up to where they are? 
I wouldn't talk about catching up so much as just a continual evolution of capabilities that recognizes that the the operating environment changes, right? And it's different situation to situation. I, I think in general, you, you look at things that are happening in the information domain right now. We probably, as a irregular warfare community in the military, need to up our game a little bit in information operations at the operational and strategic level. We are very good at, at what I would call tactical information or psychological operations. But when you look at some of the things that our adversaries are trying to do at the strategic level, directly influence U.S. population, for example, directly influence U.S. opinion on things, they are leveraging techniques and technologies that my perception is, is that we are not taking advantage of or maybe are not either from an authority's perspective or even a technical perspective are not comfortable doing the same kind of things in reverse and that we need to get better at those kind of aspects. Part of a regular warfare is, is simply figuring out ways to leverage populations and to influence populations through means other than direct combat. And the information certainly space is certainly a, a ripe for, for leverage and influence. I want to talk a minute about the future on landscaping and how difficult that looks with technology being more advanced. I know we've mentioned the drones with Mick before in some of our previous podcasts. I mean, there's bioweapons, there's artificial intelligence. How much more difficult do you think it's going to be to use irregular warfare in some of these unprecedented situations down the road? Because it's all about who has the better technology and keeping ahead of that. So it's about who has the better technology, but also about who knows how use that technology to their advantage, right? So as Ken just said, we have really gotten good at, you know, the kinetic part of the regular warfare, particularly CT. We're not that great at the strategic messaging and communications and impulse. I think we're getting better. We, we're, we're really developing that capability. So there's a core of people who are experts, but it's kind of lagged behind, I think. And that's one of the areas that I think we can improve on and we will improve on. The other areas, and this is related to technology, is the cyber, the cyber realm, which is becoming more and more critical. And it's more and more critical that the irregular warfare component of the U.S. national security apparatus embraces it and uses it. And that also includes things you just mentioned, artificial intelligence. But technology is one thing. Having the ability to use it in this arena is another. And it's like the application of it is going to be something that that we have to get good at. And as Ken just said, we it is evolved. And the, all of those things you mentioned are going to be part of that evolution. Eric Ulrich, co-founder of Lobo Institute and former Navy SEAL team commander. So the perspective is unique and it's different. And we just need to, to try and fold those perspectives into those ongoing conflict resolution efforts. And that's kind of how Nick and I went from U.S. government lives to low ones to lives. God, I mean, I know like we talked about this, we just, we can't talk about it, but I know it's such a tight, tight community in the SEAL teams and, and it, just what you're doing on such a higher level with intelligence is amazing. You know, and I'm excited to have you here because you guys have done such great stuff. And I know you guys are heading down to Uganda pretty soon. And there's so many topics and so much going on out there in the world. I think sometimes here in the States, we get so focused on our own administration issues last year, COVID. People sometimes overlook that there is much worse 
issues and conflicts in other parts of the world that they do need to help, they do need to be aware of. And one of the ones I think we can talk about, correct if I'm wrong, is child soldiering right now, correct? And uh, very passionate about it. Yes. Not to dive too deep into the military background, but is this one of the things because you've had to deal with it in the past or is it just because you guys now have the freedom to go, you know, find resolution and it is child soldiering is such a big topic and such one that does need a lot of help and support. How did you guys end up moving into this space or to this this crisis, so to speak, topic? Can I each have... Uh, similar and different experiences when it comes to children in combat. My exposure to children in combat was in Afghanistan in 2003. And I just got a, a front row seat when children are involved in combat. And whether that's just a way of life in Afghanistan, you know, I mean, the, you know, the fathers and the uncles take the younger boys with them when they go to run an ambush on, you know, either a, a competing military entity or, you know, what used to be a U.S. patrol. So you just kind of see what, how it's either kids are ingrained in it or through various conflicts, whether it was ISIS or whether it was Al Qaeda in Somalia or East Africa, AQEA is, is the common name for it or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or ISIS, whether it's, you know, in Yemen or, or Syria and Iraq, you just start to see what forced combat looks like for a child. And as a child, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll stick with the UN convention of anybody under the age of 18. And so Mick and I have different experiences with it. But at the end of it, he and I got a really unique look into what being a child soldier is when we met this guy named Anthony Apoga, who was a child soldier, a forced child soldier. He was abducted at the age of 14 and he was a child soldier for about 10 years. He was shot six times. He, the last time he was shot, he had an RPG round that basically deflected off of his right, right peck. And uh, the fins of that, of that RPG almost pretty much tore his right arm off of his body. And he was left for dead. He survived. He's extremely intelligent, extremely adaptive. He figured out ways, even though he was a cripple and as a young child soldier, on how to survive in the jungles of Africa and still be within the Lord's, still be useful enough to the Lord's resistance army that they just didn't kill themselves. And of course, we can't expand our imagination without exploring tech and space. Dan Lopez. Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Product at Arcasis. That's cool. So like all these ports and payloads and all these machines that are up there, I mean, what is the purpose of them? Are you collecting data? Because I know you guys are working with NASA, JPL. You're working, wait, there's NASA with JPL. Bezos has his rocket going up, I think, in May, if he can make it. We have mm-hmm. SpaceX and we have all these. Do they all work with you guys to use you to build things for photos, analytics, research, or... Really you know, that's a, that's a great question. And how I, I, I frame it out is you look at the earth in a certain way, and we all have this. We, we're all built innately with something called the overview effect and appreciation for that. So when you see the earth, especially from space, you experience it in a, in a manner that gives you awe and uh, inspiration. But when we look back at the earth, all of those markets and all of those different business applications that look back, like telecommunications, broadband, television, 
you know, the, the stuff that you see with Starlink these days, remote sensing. I spent many years in the remote sensing business, taking pictures of the earth and making sense of them for many different use cases. Those types of things are earth focused. We're still looking back at the earth. What Arcasys is really trying to do is then say, what is the next step? We're going to create economies of scale, but space to space. So it's a space-based economy. The next phase of that is to discover what we haven't really connected the dots with by instantiating what you have access to now in space. You can do things like in situ resource utilization. You can look at providing telecommunications, not looking back at the earth, but looking out elsewhere. So those are the kind of things that we're looking to do. Space recycling, there's someone who might be able to put new coatings on a satellite that doesn't necessarily ship like that or fixing a broken satellite. Those are things that we would be able to bring to bear. Christopher Mick, NASA. Like the one we have coming up that's big for next month is the Mars Perseverance rover that'll be landing on Mars uh, February 18th. So just coming up here next month, less than 30 days. So that's been a big one. It launched over the summer and we did programs uh, celebrating the launch and what the mission was going to be about. Now we're coming up on the landing and some uh, presentations, getting kind of kids ready for what the rover is going to do and how it's going to land and all that. So that's a big one coming up, one of their flagship programs. Wait, can we talk about what it is going to do and when it lands? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, anybody familiar with the Curiosity rover? This rover looks very similar. It's the same kind of build. Kind like, of so, like the little dune buggy Jeep? No, I'm on the wrong. It rover. looks like a small car. Yeah, it's, it's about two tons. It's got six wheels on it. So it looks like a small car. And it's if you looked at it from about 100 yards away, it's identical looking to the Curiosity rover that's there right now. But if you got up close, it's just the same body design because that worked really well. And to cut down costs, they're like, we're just going to use that same kind of chassis and that setup. And all the science on it is different than the Curiosity rover. So the Curiosity rover is still driving around Mars. That's still working. That landed around 2012. And now Perseverance is going to land, as I said, next month. And that has different science instruments in it. So one of the, the main differences is it has, it's called a cacheting system. So it's actually going to drive around. And when the people controlling the rover see something that they think is a good candidate for a sample, they actually have a kind of looks like the size of a piece of sidewalk chalk. If you remember that, you know, it's kind of thick tube, a piece of sidewalk chalk. That's going to be roughly the size of the samples it can take. So it can take rock and soil, put it in that cache tube, leave it kind of packaged up for a later mission, a sample return mission to go around and pick up those samples and bring them back to Earth. So that's one main difference it's going to be able to do. It's going to, it has a ground penetrating radar. So it'll be able to see underneath the ground, you know, the structures of things it's driving hey, over. I want one of those in LA. <laughs> For finding potholes and interesting things. Right, in of course. Yeah. That, the other one the kid's are really excited about, it's got a demonstration element to it. It's got a helicopter on board. So it's going to be depositing this helicopter on the surface and it's going to kind of prove the concept that a helicopter can work in the thin atmosphere of Mars. And so it's going to do how, short little... How, how big is a helicopter? I mean, is this... The helicopter would be kind of, I'm approximating, but it'd be kind of the size of a small table. It's got two carbon fiber blades that counter rotate. Like an oversized drone, like a drone. Yeah, exactly. And okay. it's very, very lightweight. And the blades counter-rotate, and they do about 10,000 rotations per minute because the atmosphere for Mars is about 100 times thinner than the atmosphere here on Earth. Media Maven's podcast wishes everyone a happy and healthier new year. 
And we look forward to another podcast year with more of the best and brightest and those that just make an impact on the world for the better. For more info on Media Mavens podcast or any of our guests or hosts, go to MediaMavensPodcast.com or anywhere podcasts can be heard. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.